Hello and welcome to That Movie Sounds Gay, a podcast all about movies that are kinda gay. Or maybe they're not, but they probably are, at least a little. Yes, this podcast is generally not going to be looking at movies that are explicitly gay. Instead, its focus will be more on movies that have a homoerotic undercurrent to them, whether intentional or not. Or sometimes for movies that are just interesting to discuss from a gay point of view. I'll be looking at old movies, new movies, animated movies, live-action movies, good movies and kind of bad movies. Action, horror, comedy, romance, you name it. But one thing we all have in common is, they sound gay. On this episode of That Movie Sounds Gay, we'll be discussing Batman Forever. And if it sounded to you like I edited out another title from last week's episode and changed it to, next week we'll be looking at Batman Forever, you'd be right. Originally I had intended to cover Batman and Robin, but when I started to do some preliminary notes and such, I began to realise that I had more to say about Batman Forever. I may come back to Batman and Robin at some point, I do think there are still things to say about that movie in terms of gay subtext, but for now this episode will be focusing on his predecessor. Batman Forever was released in 1995 and was the third of four Batman films released by Warner Brothers in this period. The previous two, Batman and Batman Returns, had been directed by Tim Burton and were both financial and critical successes. However, Batman Return did cause some split in audiences as there was a considerable backlash from parents and other concerned parties who felt the film was too dark and sexual. And although it was a financial success, it wasn't as much of a financial success as Warner Brothers had hoped. Therefore, Joel Schumacher took over to direct with the aim of making a more family-friendly Batman movie, one with a wider mainstream appeal. Val Kilmer replaced Michael Keaton as Batman, Chris O'Donnell joined the cast as Dick Grayson, and Tommy Lee Jones and Jim Carrey joined as the villains Two-Face and the Riddler respectively. Nicole Kidman took on the role as Dr. Chase Meridian, Bruce Wayne and Batman's new love interest for the movie. In fact, I think besides Pat Hingle as Commissioner Gordon and Michael Goh as Alfred, pretty much everyone was replaced. Batman Forever has, to put it kindly, a mixed reception. It's definitely not as universally panned as its sequel, Batman and Robin, but compared to Batman and Batman Returns, it's generally not considered as highly. I'll talk more about this in a bit, like so many things in Batman Forever is surprisingly divisive. But as for now, I'm going to go ahead and give a quick summary of the plot so we're all on the same page. Although this time, it's going to be a bit more difficult for me, as it's a pretty busy movie. This will contain spoilers, so if you haven't seen this movie, I'd recommend watching that first before listening any further. The movie opens with Two-Face holding a hostage at a bank vault, and Batman is called in to deal with the situation. It is here he meets his love interest for a movie, Dr Chase Meridian, who is a psychologist and who makes it very apparent from her very first moment on camera that she finds Batman fascinating, but also sexy. Batman rebuffs her and manages to swoop in and save the rather hysterical hostage, but is unable to capture Two-Face. Shortly after this, we are introduced to Edward Nigma, a um, worrying employee of Wayne Enterprises, who is obsessed with Bruce Wayne and who has been working on an invention called The Box. The Box manipulates people's brainwaves in order that they feel like they're inside TV shows, which is apparently something people want. He introduces himself to Bruce Wayne and tries to persuade him to give him the go-ahead to mass-produce and release his invention, and also recognise his genius. But Bruce Wayne is hesitant, and after Nygma pushes him for an immediate answer, he says no. This immediately makes Nygma decide he now hates Bruce Wayne, and he will have his revenge. Later, he forcibly tests the box on his disapproving boss, 
and finds out that his invention has a side effect of giving him all the wearer's intelligence and knowledge. He then murders him but makes it look like a suicide, sort of. Then he is shown to start stalking Bruce Wayne, sending him riddles and generally being a bit sinister. Concerned by this, Bruce Wayne asks Chase her opinion and then invites her to the circus. It is here we are introduced to Dick Grayson, a member of a family of flying acrobats called the Flying Graysons. Two-Face reappears with a bomb and demands that Batman reveal himself or he will kill everyone. Dick is able to save the majority of people by getting rid of the bomb, but Two-Face kills the rest of the Flying Graysons, leaving Dick an orphan. Due to their similar origin stories, Bruce takes him in as his ward, but Dick is reluctant and rebellious and he has a lot of anger towards Two-Face for murdering his family. So he acts out by taking the Batmobile for a joyride and nearly getting beaten up and then also maybe killed by a gang of neon punks. Bruce Wayne as Batman saves him and Dick implores him to let him join him in fighting crime so he can get revenge for his family and kill Two-Face. But Batman refuses because he doesn't want to drag him down into that life. Meanwhile, Nygma has reinvented himself as the Riddler and persuades Two-Face to join up with him so together they can get Batman. They go on a crime spree and using their loot, they fund the production of the box and upon release, it's massively successful. It's soon in almost every home in Gotham, which makes Nygma, in his non-Riddler persona, respected and wealthy. He also continues to use the box to absorb people's knowledge and expand his own intelligence. There is a big business party to celebrate and promote the box, which Bruce Wayne attends. Two-Face crashes it, causing more general mayhem, but Dick saves the day and also Bruce's life. This persuades Bruce to allow Dick to join him as his crime-fighting partner. However, unbeknownst to them, Bruce has gotten close enough to the box that Nygma now knows his secret identity. At this point, Chase has realised she is more in love with Bruce Wayne than Batman. And when Batman visits her, she tells him this without knowing they're the same person. Since he has now found happiness with Chase, Bruce decides to give up his life as Batman. Robin is unhappy with this and storms off. Since we now know who Batman is, Two-Face and the Riddler arrive at Wayne Manor, destroy the Batcave and kidnap Chase. The movie's big climax starts when Dick returns and together he and Batman go to confront Two-Face and the Riddler to rescue her. However, in this process, Robin also becomes a hostage and the Riddler tries to force Batman to choose between saving Chase or Robin, representing his life as Bruce and his life as Batman. Batman can't choose and instead distracts Riddler with a riddle about bats, and then destroys his mind by throwing a batarang at the box, making all the information it contains flood out into his brain and sort of overload it, I guess. Two-Face tries to shoot them as Batman goes to save Robin and Chase, but Batman uses distraction again and throws a bunch of coins at him, and Two-Face scrambles to catch them all and loses his footing, falling to his death. There is still the problem that the Riddler knows Batman's true identity, but later, Chase visits him in Arkham Asylum and is able to reassure Bruce that it's fine, his secret is safe, because Nygma's brain is now so messed up that he thinks he's Batman. The film ends with Batman and Robin running together towards the camera, with a bat signal in the background, showing that they are continuing to fight crime together. The first aspect I want to talk about this is Batman. It feels fitting since this is a Batman movie. However, while this is an episode focusing on the film Batman Forever, it's hard to look at completely on its own. Not only because it's a third in a series of four films, it's also because Batman is a character who has a long history, starting in comic books, going into films, going into live action series, going into animation, etc. 
He's been portrayed by numerous actors and written by numerous writers. So although I consider myself a pretty big Batman fan personally, and I've been a fan since childhood, I also don't pretend to be an absolute expert. I think I'm pretty knowledgeable about certain versions of Batman and aspects of a character and his universe that interest me, but there are definitely blind spots. It's such a large and varied list of appearances and storylines that it's pretty hard to keep track of them all. In the interests of this podcast, I'd just like to say that Batman being looked at from a gay point of view or being considered to contain certain, let's call them gay elements, isn't anything new, not even when Batman Forever was released in 1995. There are lots of reasons for this and sometimes this was done by fans or writers who were themselves gay and found it interesting or even empowering to do so. Other times it was done by conservative critics who used it to warn parents about the dangers of comic books. The most notorious example of this is probably Frederick Burton's 1954 book, Seduction of Innocent. It warned people of violence, sex and drugs in comic books, as well as Batman and Robin having a pederastic relationship which might draw some innocent children into the world of homosexuality. Even people who may have otherwise been fans of the series would poke at certain aspects of Batman, whether that was the costumes, the partnership between him and Robin, or certain members of the Rogue Gallery, often for subtle or unsubtle homophobic humour. It's hard to confirm this, but for me, it's always seemed like Batman holds a particular tendency to attract this kind of attention, both positive and negative, compared to other comic book heroes. I could go on and on about this. It's a topic that I have quite a lot of feelings about, to say the least, and there is so much source material to examine. However, that would probably need its own episode, So, to just go over it fairly briefly, here are some of the aspects I think might cause this. For starters, Bruce Wayne lives a very noticeable double life, and he's generally considered to be very handsome, intelligent, and he's also ridiculously rich, and that normally doesn't make people less attractive. Presented with this, is it really so surprising that certain readers, particularly gay readers, would either identify with the duality of his life, or perhaps see him as an object to swim over? Then there are a wider cast of characters, particularly the villains. While some of them are more overtly camp and colourful, or at least queer-coded and ambiguous, quite a lot of them are memorable and fun, with striking outfits and a distinct sense of style. As someone who loves villains, Batman's villains have always been a big attraction to the series for me personally. There's also the way the villains obsess over Batman as well, and in cases such as the Joker, but in other characters as well, it's easy to read this as something more complicated than simple hatred. Finally, there's Batman and Robin. Of course, in some incarnations and storylines, Robin is a child, but for the ones where he is instead a young man rather than a boy, the two bachelors living together, being so close and sharing a secret, it's easy to see why they can be interpreted as actually being a gay couple, or as a relationship being analogous of one. In Batman Forever, Chris O'Donnell is introduced as Robin, and although his age is unclear in the movie, sometimes the characters act like he's a juvenile. He was in his mid-twenties at the time of the release, and he definitely doesn't look like he's meant to be in his teens. I have to say that I don't personally think there's a lot of chemistry between him and Batman in the film, but I do think it's pretty easy to compare Batman and Bruce's relationship to Robin, and Batman and Bruce's relationship to Jace. Especially when, in the climax of a movie, Batman is made to choose between the two in a scene that is reminiscent of similar scenes where the hero has to choose between his mistress and a wife, a girlfriend and an ex, or something like that. 
With that in mind, then there's how Robin reacts when Bruce tells him he has found happiness with Chase and wants to quit being Batman and live a life with her instead. He's upset and it can be seen as more than Bruce choosing to be Bruce over being Batman. It can be seen as she's choosing her over him. In the end, when Bruce finally declares that he can be both Bruce Wayne and Batman and when he manages to save them both, this can be read as him embracing both sides of himself, accepting that together they make the whole person that he is. I guess this particular aspect lends itself especially well to a bisexual reading of Batman's character, even if it's just a metaphorical one. Incidentally, I found this conclusion to Batman's dilemma quite interesting because usually, in especially modern works, we sort of hint that Bruce Wayne is really just a facade and Batman is his real self, which contrastingly lends itself better to a gay reading rather than a bisexual reading of Batman, at least in my opinion. In terms of villains, the Riddler and Two-Face are both worth mentioning when discussing the gay aspects of this movie. There's the relationship they have with each other, of course, delighting in their misdeeds together, having a lot of fun, and bickering from time to time like an old married couple. But there's also how they both bond over their shared obsession with ending Batman. It's a very homocentric motivation, especially when Riddler evokes an image to his fellow villain of finally killing Batman only after he's been humiliated and exposed with curiously breathy line delivery. This seems even more implicitly gay when remembering how the Riddler behaved before he became the Riddler. He was obsessed with Bruce Wayne when he worked at Wayne Enterprises, his workspace was plastered with pictures of him from magazines and whatnot, and although he doesn't know that Bruce Wayne is Batman at this point, it establishes a tendency for this character to obsess over men. I suppose you could say that he wants to be Bruce Wayne rather than be with Bruce Wayne, and similarly, later on, he wants to prove he's better than Batman rather than there being a homoerotic aspect to his obsession with him, but these aren't really mutually exclusive. In fact, I don't even think they're contradictory at all. Obviously, most of us aren't comic book villains, but I think for quite a lot of gay people, there can sometimes be an uncertainty, especially earlier in life, whether you want to be your crush or whether you want to be with your crush. As well as the interactions between characters and their storylines, I think something interesting about Batman Forever is the way it treats its world it's set in, compared to its two predecessors. Upon taking the film on, Joel Schumacher was told that Warner Brothers wanted this film to have a more fun atmosphere, a more marketable atmosphere. This meant that while the previous two also showcased the city of Gotham and the Batmobile, the costumes and things like that, Batman Forever is pretty amusing with how much it crams in, in terms of gadgets, vehicles and basically anything that kids could point at and ask their parents for them to buy. I'm sure this helped its appeal towards a younger audience, but also adds to the camp feel of the movie. It does feel like it's trying to have fun with costumes, superheroes and isn't taking itself very seriously overall. I think this also makes the machismo aspects of Batman's character to not feel as serious either. The exaggerated angst and drama both him and Robin go through feels more like them putting on a show and looking good while doing it, although neither of them are particularly my type. Besides the characters, something I noticed about the film on my recent rewatch was the attention it pays to the male body, particularly athletic male bodies. In a superhero movie that focuses on a male protagonist, you would expect this to an extent, but the film opens up with several close-ups of Batman's body, covered in black rubber as he suits up, and then there is the stuff in the background, such as big muscular sculptures and Wayne Enterprises, 
and also slow shots of acrobats flying through the air in tights shot from beside and below. It seems when critics, presumably straight male critics, bring up these aspects, it tends to be to mock them or to comically wince at them. There are plenty of things to criticise in this movie, but honestly this particular one always kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Similarly to when presumably straight female critics say the movie has a female gaze, which kind of ignores the fact that Schumacher isn't a woman, he's a gay man, and the editor of the cinematographer and indeed the vast majority of the crew are men. In my opinion, these generally seem to come from either heteronormative or homophobic viewpoints, and it's a bit exasperating. In writing this episode, I rewatched this film series in order, and I have to say, I find them all to be pretty flawed. There are things I enjoy in all of them, but also things that I don't. This episode isn't a review for the other three films, although, as I said, I might come back to look at Batman and Robin in the future. But as I said, it's difficult to just look at this film in a vacuum and judge it solely by itself. As a Batman movie, especially one aimed primarily at children, I actually think it's pretty successful. As a child, I remember thinking it was fun, and it was significantly more financially successful than Batman Returns, which shows people were going out to see it. I think right now superhero movies are so successful and so... safe, generally speaking, I appreciate that this has a zany, energetic feel to it that feels so unashamed of being a big, ridiculous comic book. I also think the character of Bruce Wayne is significantly more interesting in this than he was in the previous two films. Even though I find it hard to believe Batman would just hang up his cape so quickly upon finding love, this and the scene in the cave where he talks about his past to Dick actually gives him some depth. There are also some other scenes that give more emotion to the character, although unfortunately these were cut. It's easy to find information about the numerous dramas and changes that occurred during the making of Batman Forever. For example, between Schumacher and Val Kilmer, or between Jim Carrey and Tommy Lee Jones. Considering the amount of difficulties the film underwent in its early days of production and shooting, I think it's quite admirable it was released and was quite a success as well. However, I don't want to mislead too much and act like I think it's an amazing masterpiece. The humour is a bit... much... For me, personally speaking, I like Jim Carrey in some roles and although I think he wasn't a bad choice for Riddler actually, I would have preferred if he dialed it down a bit. Some of the jokes land for me, but most of them are a bit much. I also think Tommy Lee Jones' portrayal of Two-Face is pretty bad. The bad Harvey side of his personality doesn't seem threatening or intimidating at all. He cackles too much. And there is very little evidence of the Harvey Dent side of himself being present at all. This duality is really important to the character and what makes him so interesting. Some of it is also pretty inadvertently funny, which I guess is either a mark for or against it depending on how you look at it. Like Dick telling Bruce, you don't understand, your parents weren't killed by a maniac, and Bruce solemnly replying, yes they were. Or Dick telling Alfred there's a robin on his bike helmet because one day he swooped in and saved his sibling from falling, just like a robin. In terms of gayness, I think Batman Forever is a very interesting movie. I don't think that Joe Schumacher was intentionally trying to make a gay Batman movie, but he was making a Batman movie if it was um, his Batman movie, and he happens to be gay. I think the fact people know that about him and the fact that he brings a certain camp over-the-top colourful elements that existed in earlier comic books in the 1960s TV show help people think of it that way. 
Although I spent some time talking about what I think are some of the ways it can be understood to have gay undercurrents, I don't want to completely brush over or leave out the fact that Batman and Robin's characters don't seem to literally be written as gay or even bisexual for that matter. I don't think that the intention was for us to think that they were literally and having a romantic relationship that we've audience just didn't get to see explicitly on the screen. However, I do think that one can watch a film and see things in it that are comparative to that, and those things are pretty interesting just to look at and discuss. Maybe in general Batman is not actually written to be gay or bisexual in the narrative of his stories, but I think there has been a history of writers, gay or otherwise, who have intentionally or unintentionally injected the character and other characters in the series with things that can be picked out and related to by people as being, well, a bit gay. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed episode 3 of That Movie Sounds Gay. This was a somewhat daunting episode for me because, as I mentioned, Batman is a character in a franchise that has got so much to it. I had to try to do my best to focus on Batman forever and not get sidetracked too much, but I also think the way it fits into Batman history is interesting as a whole, and I didn't want to ignore that either. I'd be interested to know what your thoughts are on the movie, and also what you think the best Batman movie is. Are there others that you think stand out in terms of gay subtext besides the two Schumacher movies? I have some thoughts, but I'm sitting on them for now while I consider what I want to cover in the future. You can find me on Twitter where my username is ThatMovieSounds or send me an email at gay. I know previously I said that my username on Twitter was ThatMovieSoundsGay, but that's like my profile name. The handle is ThatMovieSounds because ThatMovieSoundsGay was too long. Um, but yeah, don't forget to subscribe and join me next week for episode 3 where we'll be going a bit further back in cinema and actual history and looking at the 1959 epic Ben-Hur.